Well, hello. Welcome along to this week's High Performance Podcast. Oh, we've got a great guest lined up for you today. Um, Let's just get straight into it and you can hear a quick snippet of the kind of stuff coming your way in the next hour. I've been dealt these cards. I don't like these cards. So I'm going to do my utmost to change these cards. Basically change my, my destiny. And that's what I wanted to do. I had to win. If I didn't win, I don't know what would people say if I, you know, when I did the move. I don't know. But I won and I was successful. Mom deserves the best. And there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I'm really excited for you to hear this episode. I just want to call out a few people that have sent us lovely messages this week. Um, Steve Frey said, I've just listened to Joe Malone. So powerful. You should be incredibly proud of your first year. You've produced something very authentic. Keep up the great work. Uh, Paul Taylor also said, thanks for introducing me to Tail Wimbro, The Man in the Glass. Um, If you don't know about the poem, The Man in the Glass, just type it into YouTube. It's a really beautiful poem. And he said, what I love about the Joe Malone pod was that you didn't discuss scents or sales or stores, but the real insights we needed to know for high performance. I love it. Please don't stop. Well, the good news is we're not going to stop. We've got another episode for you today. We're only really just getting going, I think. Um, You can check us out on YouTube. You can find us as well on Instagram at High Performance. But regardless of where you get your inspiration from the High Performance Podcast, I thank you so much for joining us for another episode. Let's get straight into it. It's time for this week's High Performance Podcast. Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, delving into the minds of some of the most successful artists, visionaries, entrepreneurs and sports stars on the planet with one aim, to unlock the things they've learned so you can apply them to your life. As always, Professor Damien Hughes, expert in high-achieving team cultures, is alongside me. And Damien, today's guest actually knows all about team culture, both as a competitor and now as a leader. But I think what interests us is the stuff way deeper than just football results or formations. It's about it's about getting to the level that most people don't normally see or even discuss. Yeah, definitely, Jake. I've been really excited uh, to meet our guest today since... Uh, in the first series, we met Robin Van Persie, and he told us a little anecdote about this particular guest where he recounted an occasion where he was a young player and this guest had sort of coached him, explained to him what he didn't like and what he should maybe look to develop. And in that one anecdote, there was a display of humility. There was an example of someone that was a team player and somebody that was smart and looking to add to his team's competitiveness. So I've been really excited to uh, sit down and 
Meet our guest. Brilliant. Well, let's get going on this one then and meet one of the greatest footballers, not just of his generation, but of any generation. However, we actually want to go way beyond the England Caps, the Invincibles, the Premier League trophies. What we're interested to know about is his coping mechanism for dealing with pressure as he blazed a trail. He was the first black captain to lift a major trophy at Wembley. How can he encourage other high achievers to marry sensitivity and success, particularly in a world where sensitivity often is either ignored or sometimes even frowned upon? How can he not allow one to derail the other? And how, as a leader, does he stick to his principles? Does he speak his mind? Does he maintain his credibility and allow others to flourish? Welcome to another episode where a well-known name will share so much to help you listening to this learn so much. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome Sol Campbell to the High Performance Podcast. Hi there, Sol. Good morning, gentlemen. So, what is high performance? Uh, for me, high performance is um, sacrifice. You know, You know, so many people want to get to the top. They speak about it. They say all the right things, but there's a lot more to it. You know, behind the scenes, you've got to really, you know, that commitment. Sometimes people sacrifice it and, you know, uh, everybody, everything goes by the wayside and, you know, your family, your, your friends, uh, you just want to get to the top. And then obviously you want to stay at the top as well. So when you're up there and if you, if you have pushed everything aside and when you do get to the top you don't want to let it go and and some people almost have a little 10 15 year blockage with uh with the not the rest of the world but with everything outside trying to kind of get in the way so you really are concentrated on getting in the top and not allowing anything to uh, derail you and i want to stay there as long as possible i i work hard i'm you know i'm playing my football and i'm getting better and better but i'm not going to allow anything you know, to get in the way. And, and there's other guys who, you know, do it in a different way. And, you know, they have their families and things like that. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And they, and they, they cope and they, and they make the, make it to the top and stay at the top as well. So there's different paths. Um, but, uh, definitely sacrifice is, uh, is one of those and commitment, um, and consistency as well. You know, be more consistent than everyone else around you. And if you get a team that is is maybe 70, 80% of consistent players, then you, uh, you're onto a winner. So which one are you then, Sol? Are you the the person who makes a bit of sacrifice, but then at some point decides that family is also important and going out is important and running businesses is important? Or were you the guy who, as you said in your own words, for 15 years blocked out the rest of the world and it became about one thing and one thing only, being successful? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's all about, you know... It, my family, you know, I, I, I've come from a big family, a you know, working class back in Stratford, Plasto. So there was, it wasn't much, uh, um, it wasn't um, the opportunities around. Um, so, and I kind of, you know, I, I grew up in the, uh, in the seventies and into the eighties and I just saw what was happening around me. I, I saw some of my friends just um, go, but not go by the wayside, but there's no opportunities and you do get distracted. You do get just distracted. And if you're not strong within yourself, yeah, you, you go off the rails and you, and you almost disappear and you take a totally, totally different path. And I wasn't like that. I, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, you know, I love football. I didn't know that I wanted to be a footballer, but I knew I loved this game and I love being around it. I love, I'm a competitor. I'm a street footballer, so I played a lot of football in the streets with uh, older kids, and that kind of really uh, toughens you up as well. 
And I just knew, and I knew when, you know, it started to go, say my friends wanted to do something different, which was not really the proper way of kind of living. I knew where to kind of cut the line and say, guys, um, I'll see you tomorrow at school or something like that. And uh, I just went home or, or just carried on playing football in my back garden or whatever. So I knew from early on that um, my discipline was there and I just wanted to, you know, I love football. I didn't know I wanted to be a footballer, but I just loved the game and I wanted to get better and better at the game. So that discipline, Sol, um, that really intrigues me. So where did you develop that? I know you said you grew up in a in a big family and I know that your parents were first generation uh, Jamaican immigrants. Where did that sense of discipline come from? I think it, it comes from something in, you know, inside me. Um, my environment, my my mum, my dad, my dad was really tough. My mum was loving. Uh, it was a, probably a nice balance. And also I was, I was just switched on and I, I looked around my area and I, I saw guys, you know, enjoying themselves as you should as a, as a young boy growing up, but then kind of losing it and going on a different path. And I just had something inside me saying, well, a little voice saying, look, no, this is not for you. Definitely my parents as well, the discipline they, they had for me and something inside me just just something different about me saying, well, this is not the way to, to do it. This is, this is not you, Solzier, Jeremiah Campbell. This is not you. I wonder whether your parents then sort of almost, um, whether it was the love or whether it was the discipline, made you feel a bit special, made you feel like you're not one of those. You've, there's more. You've got more in your life. You're going to do more than just go out and have a few drinks and nick a car and get into trouble. I think for me, um, I always wanted the best. Coming from Jamaica, I was first generation into, um, into London into the UK um, it was tough for them so they wanted the best for their sons and daughters and um, you know not always it worked out but uh, they tried you can only try as a, as a parent but for me it comes down to what is inside you how do you feel how do you look at the world how does the world look at you uh, and vice versa your kind of natural intelligence not intelligence that you learn from uh, books and things like that, that natural awareness of, of what's good and what's bad. Yeah, sometimes it gets blurred. And sometimes you make mistakes as well as a kid, and, that, and that's acceptable. But um, something kicks in and something inside you say, I don't want to cross the line because I know where that's going. And sometimes you've gone down that line and you cross the line and it's not ended up <laughs> in a good place. So you, that's the way you, uh, you learn as well. Um, through mistakes. Was there one particular incident that sort of cemented this moral compass for you that you thought this is the right way to do it? Because to be so young and have such a clear sense of right and wrong and what your morals were seems pretty exceptional. I think <laughs> I think it's when I was I smashed the window once and uh, I, I kind of went back <laughs> went back to the scene. And uh, someone saw me and then they found out and told me, told my dad and I, he had to pay for a new window and uh, I got a clip around the ear or a bit more than that anyway. So <laughs> I started to work out, you know, this is, this is, this is not the way to kind of act and, um, and carry yourself. So uh, I learned pretty early on, you know, the rights and, and wrong. And what about when, when football started? I'm really interested to, to know how that mindset was beneficial to you. Once you left home, you went to Lillishaw, you know, you were on that select group of people that at a very young age were identified as being exceptionally talented. You went from a crowded home to a very different environment. What did that complete independence offer you at that point? And how much did the things you'd learned growing up in central London help you? 
Do you know what? Um, it's been um, fantastic kind of balance for me. Yes, I've got the street kind of, um, you know, learning football in the streets and things like that. And a little bit of school football, a little bit of district football, but my 80% is street footballer. Growing up, growing up, and then, you know, getting into Liddyshaw and, and, and getting that kind of classical training. Yes, I came from a very, very crowded home and then went into Liddyshaw that I had my own bed, my own wardrobe, and um, simple, simple things that, you know, my kids can't even dream of, you know, how I used to live. And another four guys in the room, in the dormitory. So, you know, it was a nice balance for me. And I learned a hell of a lot just being in that environment. And, you know, I, I had a fantastic time at Liddyshaw. I learned the street football to kind of be thinking outside the box as you have to do as a street footballer. You know, I'm, I'm nine years old and I'm playing against 12 year olds or whatever. So you've got to work out, you know, I'm not as strong as them, but you've got to work out how to beat them. So you bring that kind of thinking outside the box kind of mentality and then you get classical training and you allow both sides to kind of grow and, and not diminish because then as you go, as you, as I started to get older, I started to feel less, you've got to know the rules and the games of the game, but then also to set yourself from, from the rest, you've got to have something special. So don't allow the football that made you great as a, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten year old, don't allow that to kind of disappear. For me as a coach as well, I, I like doing that. I, I want players to kind of express themselves and, and don't lose. I want something special there. I want to get to the heart of you. What's you? I, I want that. I want to take that special kind of talent out of you and, and explore that and let it grow as well. For me, the balance between Liddyshaw and street football was fantastic and it gave me discipline. You know, you've got this opportunity. Don't let it go. You know, I had some friends there. Um, well, I still, I still have friends uh, from Liddyshaw. They had a slightly different kind of... Uh, um, you know, upbringing, you know, well to do, everybody saying they were going to be the next uh, best thing or from centre forward to midfielder to def defenders. And I was kind of always on the side, you know, just growing up and my family was on the sidelines and shouting, you know, you're the best, you're the best. I had to do it all myself. But these guys grew up and, and it changes and they disappear. And, you know, within two, three years, they're, they're out the game. But I was hungry. I came there. I wasn't good. I had a attributes but I, my long distance stuff wasn't good my I was quick but I didn't know how to get even quicker you know things like that which I was taught there but then I carried on my training week would be you know Monday Tuesday train and then you have a half a day and and then you have, you would you and you train and you you do a workout on a I think on a Tuesday uh long distance or circuits and then you, you'd watch a game so I remember I used to do all that and on a Saturday morning I've done a workout, you know, on a, a 3,000 meters or, or, or shuttles in the week plus training. And I'll do another session, you know, uh, repeat that session to get better because I was kind of way behind all the other guys. And I said, oh, well, I, I'm not having this. I was maybe second from bottom out of 16 guys. Even one of the keepers beat me, you know, <laughs> thinking, what am I doing? So I kind of set myself, right, I'm going to work, I'm going to work, I'm going to get better, I'm going to get better, my fitness, my uh, speed, my endurance and speed as well. So I did all those works, then played on a Sunday. I couldn't believe it. I was doing all that at 14 years old because I was so behind everyone, but I had that pride in myself. I did that for six months. Not six months, yeah, about three months. And then they did another test. I was joint third. And that's the work in the work ethic. And I knew I didn't want to waste this opportunity. They, were give, they gave me a lot of information about my body, my you know, circuits, and, and they were very good. There's a guy called Craig Simmons, a fantastic guy there for the uh, FA. And um, he taught me a lot about my body. And I, 
I kept going. I would work out before I went to sleep in the showers and things like that. I would do my burpees and all that kind of stuff. And I was, I was kind of hiding, making sure none of the lads saw me. So what are you doing? Do some extra homework or doing some extra work? So I didn't used to tell anybody. I used to have a shower, work out wow. and then go to bed. And I used to do all those things with no one knowing. And just, and then all of a sudden the lads saw me on one session and did the 3000, the shuttles and the speed, the speed work. And all of a sudden I was third and they just couldn't believe it. I said, I put a lot of work in behind the scenes. What is this strange thing, Sol, that I've identified in football, just in my role as a, as a broadcaster out, outside the game looking in, which I haven't seen in the athletics when I've covered that or Formula One when I covered that, this kind of desire to not be a swap they talk about being busy don't they for ex-players sit there and go oh he was busy he was busy he was always doing extras oh, what and then they also say like two breaths later wish I'd been more dedicated as a player wish I'd taken care of my body wish I'd done the extra bits and I'm thinking hold on you still haven't managed to connect the dots here that that's all those other players were doing was the extra stuff that got them to the top what is that about football it's a, it totally confuses me when you're in a team that has a mixture of quality and guys who are, they're playing football, but they're not really committed. They're, they made it and they're settled. They're happy where they are. And you've got a mixture. Then it might, it might start to come out, oh, he's busy, he's doing an extra, things like that. You know, just to kind of almost cover themselves and make themselves look important. But I think when you're in a top side, everyone's doing extras. Because you, if you don't do extras, you look like the odd one out. That's what I, that's how I saw it. I used to have that, you know, at Tottenham, you know, some would do extras, some wouldn't do extras. When I was at Arsenal, nearly everyone did extras. Do you know what I mean? Even free kicks or a bit of running or a bit of kind of two touch or whatever games. Everyone did extras. No one just went straight in. So I think it comes down to the quality and the mentality of the team wherever you are. And also I think the manager as well, you know. So jumping forward a little bit then, Sol, how do you as a head coach go into environments and handle seeing that mix of responses? Some players staying it's behind difficult. and doing the extras, some of them <laughs> sneaking off early. Like how, like how do you process that and how do you try to change that culture? Slowly, but you have to kind of try to implement it quick enough because it's only the first two weeks, you can see the deficiency in some of the players. And you can see one player, you know, or say three, four players, and then the leader of the pack, and then they all go in, and then there's only one or two left out. So you've got to say, right, how do I keep the leader of the pack engaged? And what sometimes I do, I, I kind of extend the training to kind of say, no, the training's not finished. This is the last session. So, so I kind of add another 15 minutes, really, just to get in certain things, but add it in the training so it's, it's kind of official. If you leave them to their own devices, some of them will just, will just go in every day and not do extras. So you've got to be clever about it and implement it into the training. There's some situations you, you have to kind of tweak the training to kind of mask what you're trying to do. Now, it's part of the training, but really it's kind of specific kind of areas like shooting and, you know, crossing and things like that. You kind of mask it. Well, I'm not saying I'm, I'm trying to trick them, but they do it. And then all of a sudden after... After a month, they get it. And then you might say, right, the training's finished. You fancy doing extras. And they might continue it. And they do it on their own kind of accord. And that's what I want. I want, I want to give the responsibility to the players. But in the beginning, if I don't know everybody, and I don't know some of them might sneak, not sneak off, go off, and I've had enough, I have to kind of put it in. And then after about a month or two, allow them to say, look, do you fancy doing some more? 
And then I know if they're really committed about the, their job. And what are you like, Sol, with the people who you've given them a month and you've pretty much laid the groundwork for this and they still choose not to do the extras? Do you know what? It's uh, If I need to get you know results and someone is particularly kind of, they're down in, in, in one part of their game and I need to get that up to the proper level, I'll actually pull them and say, look, no, we're doing this session, but I'll pull them. Because I know you have to do that. You can't allow, you're in a situation that you need to get your wins, you need to you know improve the team, you need to move up the table, or you need to get out of rele- relegation, or you need to win, you need to get, whatever. You need to do this. You cannot allow you know it just to fester and continue without getting checked. And then come Saturday, it affects you. And then ultimately, if you don't get the results, you're out the door. So, <laughs> so you've got to say, I've given you quarter, but you still don't want to know, but right, I'm going to, you know, take it in and implement this into the training session so I can get the best out of you. You know, we, we need to win games. I need to stay in the job. I want to be successful. I want to make you successful as well. Not just me. You know, football's hard work. You know, it's not easy. The harder you work, the easier it does get because you're used to that kind of, you know, that level. See, one of the things that fascinates me in, in understanding some of your career history, Sol, is your ability to almost observe and watch and spot signs. You know, that's something that you describe you saw as a streets as a kid, going to Lillishaw, going into Arsenal. You saw patterns of behaviour. You saw things that intrigued you. When you walk into an environment, what sort of things do you observe that tell you it's a healthy culture? It's a culture where improvement, discipline and um, high performance is expected? Um, first of all, I go in and see who, who says hello. Things like that. How do they treat each other? Are they just, you know, walking past and, you know, not even, you know, recognising anybody? Are their heads down all the time? Or you get a variety of, of characters in football clubs and you need that. You need that. I, even I, I love all that kind of, you know, the banter and all that. And I, I love all that. But just the, the small things, politeness, being courteous, being on time, tardiness. Are they, are they on time? You know, are they late coming out of training? Yes, I get that. Sometimes you're late. But is it a regular thing? All those little things, because they take off, it's all respect. If you can't get on time or you're injured and you need to be in, I don't know, an hour before everybody starts or an hour and a half before you start, are you there? Or are you kind of right on the, you know, on the hour and a half or hour to, to kind of, you know, clock in? Why, why can't you get there 10 minutes earlier or whatever? So I see, you see all those things, those little nuances that what go on and you're going to, you're going to, and then you piece it together. You can't do it straight away. You got, you got to allow it to kind of fester. And then they can see your discipline and you talk to them and, and you see if it carries on or it, does it stop. You, you, you have a meetings with them and you say, this is how this should be going. It could rub them up the wrong way, but you know what it takes to kind of get to the top. And for me, when I set these things, it's a sieve. You know, you start sieving out who really wants it, who's committed. And I need to find that out very, very quickly. You do find out who's who in a game and the attitude and, and who they are and half time and if they're one nil down, who, who keeps them fighting, who, all those kind of things. So you put, piece that all together. But I, I, I learn a lot from the training ground, the training sessions and things like that, because you're there more, 80% of the time you're, you're at the training ground and you can, you can put a session on and you can see if someone gets it very early on or the work ethic is, is correct. It's interesting stuff, this Damien, because it's, it's so 
adaptable to real life for people who are listening to this podcast and they're not involved in football and they never will be, but they might run a business or work in a business, work in a team and they need this. And I know you talk a lot, Damien, when, when you speak to people about tripwires and it sounds to me like that's what Sol is setting for his players, these little tripwires and let's see who falls. <laughs> There's no booby trap there. <laughs> it's not that. Kind, it's not that kind of. Uh, it's just. I'm just trying to find out. You know what? What's the, the level of everybody really? You know because I need to find out the commitment. It's not like sure. oh, you tripwire and like boom, it goes off. God, it's not that bad. No, but the story of a tripwire is um, the, the, like where the origins of it come from. Is I don't know if you remember the van, uh, the band Van Halen, and they were the guys that in 1984 they were the biggest rock act in the world. And Dave Lee Roth, the lead singer, had a concern that the people working on building the sets, like when nobody was watching days in advance, whether they were committed, whether they were doing what they said they would do, whether they were following through on all the actions, so all the things you describe in a club. So he came up with, it's a famous story in, in rock music where he insisted that they used to have a rider put halfway in their contract, which was whenever they arrived in the dressing room, they had a bowl of M&M chocolates waiting for them with all the blue ones taken out. And that was his tripwire that when he went and looked, he he would be able to see if there was any blue tripwires. That would tell them either they hadn't read the instructions or they didn't care about what he'd asked them to do anyway. And those two things were his tripwire to say, I need to pay close attention to the quality of the work behind it. So what Jake's describing is you, when you see somebody, whether they shake hands or whether they look you in the eye and say hello, that's a, almost a tripwire moment that gives you a clue as to what kind of culture, how people feel about yeah. the place when yeah. they're around. Would you do us a favour, Sol? Would you would you share with us what, what is the first message you like to give to the players when you go into a football club? You've done it twice now. And I think first impressions count for a lot. You'd never get a second chance to make them. What is it that you say to those players to set the tone, set the agenda, and more importantly, set the culture that you want at a Sol Campbell football club? I think the first thing is for, for me is shaking everybody's hands and looking at them and saying, look, how you doing? I'm blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, I've heard lots of stuff and things like that. I'm, you know, I'm just a human human being, normal guy. Yes, you know, working hard, you know, as a, as a professional footballer. And I'm here as a, as a manager and I want to get the best out of the club. So first, for me, handshake, looking, you know, who are you? Quick conversation. And then obviously a meeting after as well. So I want to get them all down and, and sit down and have a meeting so they can hear me. It's a massive thing when people can hear you and the tone and, and also the honesty as well. Being honest to the, to the guys because... If you're not honest to the to the guys, within a couple of weeks they can find out who you are. Really, uh, footballers are very good at that as a as a pack. You know, they can work you out very quickly. And then the main thing is, as long as you're honest to the players, and and you're kind of allowing people to you know have their say, or everybody's got a chance until something else happens. I mean, that's the kind of attitude, and that's the kind of that's what I want to portray. You know, I'll give you the the, the slate's clean. Let's go again. Because some players, the previous manager, they might have not been playing. They might be, um, you know, out of favour. No, I want to come in and I say, look, you've got a chance. Prove it to me. Prove that you want to be in the team. The actual kind of selection, I want that to happen. It's, you know, competition breeds success. You should allow that to happen. You know, who wants to be the best? Who wants to stay in the team? You know, and then you create that. And uh, as long as you're honest about it and, and you're fair and, you know, you do get the players who 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 don't play uh, as well, but still want to be in a team and all that kind of stuff. So you got all that kind of to deal with. There's a lot of headaches to deal with, but as a manager, it's normal. 
And I, I want to portray that. I want to give them as much opportunity to kind of prove their worth. Do you want to be, do you want to play for this club? It's interesting stuff. And what's great about the position you're in, Sol, is this, you know, no player can look at you and say, you don't know what I'm going through because you had it all. You had the highs, you had the lows, the great times, the hard times. And that's what's brilliant is that this is all against the backdrop of what of what you went through. I want to talk about um, how you deal with footballers who are struggling a bit and who maybe have got issues maybe with their mental health. Is, is that something that you experienced when you were a player, mental health struggles at any time? I think for me... Um... You know, when I was playing, I think um, a lot of people probably didn't really didn't really um, talk about mental problems or or stresses in their lives as much until it kind of hit the headlines or whatever. You know, and and some players have taken it out in you know in drink and drugs and you know all that kind of stuff. So for me, I kind of say to myself, well, I'm from a tough background. Life is not easy. Sometimes you're going to have some great times, and uh, but sometimes you're going to have some really bad times and you're going to deal with it. I just kind of go back, back to Plaster, back to Stratford. And I used to think to myself, God, do you know where you've come from? Where you are now, yes, it's hurting. Yes, you're, 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 you know, you're pissed off. You're, yes, you're angry. Fans are on your back. Yes, the media are on your back. Yes, the manager's on your back. Everyone's on your back. But I used to kind of retreat and go back into remembering those days and reminiscing about those days of, of where I, I came from and how, how difficult it was. And that used to help me. I, I know it's not going to help everybody. Some people need external help as well. Some people need a psychologist, a sports psychologist to help them out. Sometimes they need a good friend or, or a family member. It's a mixture. But for me, I went back to that and, and that kind of got me through through life, just remembering how difficult it was growing up as a young lad, nine, nine brothers, two sisters in East London, not a penny to rub together, had to grow up incredibly fast as a, as a, as a kid because you had to or you just get trampled over and kind of went back and simplified your life. And then you can start seeing what's wrong. Because as time goes on, you pick up things. You pick up, you pick up, uh, pick up cars. You pick up clothes. You pick up houses. You pick up, you know, bad habits or whatever. You pick all those things up, you know, and it, the list can go on. But for me, I, I, I kind of, you know, retracted and, and, and simplified it, and then I can see what's really wrong. I would go back and say, right, you know what? That's wrong. That's out. That's staying. And then all of a sudden, you start saying, Do you know what? I'm, I'm okay now. It's uh, it's not perfect, but I'm going to build on this. And then you can see again, and you can see, and then also you, you can see the warning signs when it start when they start coming along again. So do you know what? I'm going to wide birth there. I'm going to, I'm, 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 I know, I know that story from the beginning, middle, the end. Now, I'm on to the next because my goal is, you know, I, I want to make it. I want to, I want to continue playing football for another, say, ten years or five years, or maybe my last year. I want to make it, you know, a really good year. So. That's what I, that's how how I kind of dealt with it. I think you need as you need all these kind of levers to help players. You know, you need to talk to them, you need to give them space because it is the player is is your player. You, the, you want them to play, but if it's really bothering them and they can't play, you got to help them. And there, there's a lot of levers now, and a lot of people can help these guys to kind of get through. And but the main thing is you got to give them support. So can I ask you about that experience of going back to play Stowe and sort of simplifying your life because. That sounds like you were regularly updating your to-don't list, like the things that you didn't <laughs> want in your life, which 
I'm really intrigued. Can you give us a specific example of something that when you went back and decided to simplify things, something that you did choose to let go of? I think letting go after a bad result, after losing, you know, semifinals of FA Cups back in the days, I used to kind of be in a, in the dumps for, I don't know, like a week, two weeks. It used to take a long time for me to recover after certain games. And uh, it, I think it's because I was passionate about it. And, and maybe maybe that's all I had. You know, growing up as a, as a kid, I... You know, I was I was so kind of concentrated on 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 being successful. So when it did go wrong, I think that's the only thing to kind of reset. I can't really go back to the family because you know the brothers weren't really into that, and mum and dad back in there weren't kind of really listening. Not maybe my mum a little bit. So I had to kind of reset myself. I had to do everything myself really. And there's there's loads of moments for me to kind of reset, and I I just carried on like that, just thinking about Plaza, thinking about Stratford, thinking about my my good friends from. From yesteryear, I, I still talk to. Um, I used to go. I used to actually drive back there and, and walk at my local park, you know, West Ham, West Ham Park. Walk around and just try to kind of settle myself down and, and put my feet back on the ground and and just walk around the terrace houses and around the estates and and just as I said, just simplifying it. And it happened throughout my life. And I just kept on doing that. You know, I, I would always go back home and and just kind of um, you know reboot. And what do you do now when you have those moments? <laughs> walk around the garden, take the dog around the garden. I like walking. I like walking. Um, that gets me, I know some guys like to play Is golf. Is that preferable and... to talking to people? So you yeah, seem to sort of I, deal with yeah, it on your own. Yeah, that yeah. works for you. No, no, I'll, I'll, I'll talk, to my, talk to my wife, you know, about other things. But when I just want to kind of just have a little break from the kids and things like that, just have a nice little walk with the dog and, um, and, and nice and easy and... and uh, it's not always kind of a, a a a biggie. Sometimes you just need a break and just want to enjoy the enjoy the weather. You know, if it's raining or it's you know, if it's sunshining, I don't really mind. But a nice stroll um, with dog is it's great. One thing I really want to get into is I think it's a brilliant coping mechanism, right? To go back to where you came from to ground you. Listen, this sounds ridiculous, but when I ended up on kids TV, I did the same thing, and like it's not quite at the level of competing for. Premier League trophies and playing at some of the biggest clubs in the country. But even I, as a sort of 18-year-old in London, had to come back to Norfolk and just be at my mum and dad's just to remind myself that not to sort of get carried away. So I can't imagine the level that you're at. My question is, what were these coping mechanisms about coping with? Was it pressure from fans? Was it pressure from the media? I'm so interested to hear like how difficult those periods were and and the, the, the toll that they took on you because... You you know you were you were dragged through it, weren't you? Yeah, yeah. I think for me, you know, the guys now probably are well protected, and 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 the media is dampened down. It's not as vicious as it used to be, and sometimes vile as well. It's not like that now. There's a lot more checks and balances going on, mm. and, and people don't. What's the thing that hurt the most? Can you remember? I think for me, I think for me, it's all about you know when I left say Tottenham, Tottenham to Arsenal. I think there was a, you know, the whole kind of move was, was um, you know, the pressure, even though London is, you know, huge city, it was like, you know, all eyes on me for at least, at least the first couple of seasons. You know, even though I, you know, I was successful in the first year, you know, won the double, the pressure I was under, and also I was injured as well. I came injured as well. So that even, you know, <laughs> I started uh, <laughs> on a back foot, so I had to get fit first. 
and then getting a team. And, um, you know, looking back, I don't think the kind of stuff that was uh, chucked at me by everyone who, who who wanted to put their 10 pence worth in, you just couldn't get away with that anymore. That kind of, that level. But then, you know, I, I went back. I went back to East London. I, I went back, all those things. I, I kind of simplified my, my uh, lifestyle and just totally was laser focus on making it and winning and getting fit and not letting anything get in the way. You know, cons, full concentration, commitment, you know, sacrifice. So they lit the fire in you then. That criticism lit a fire. Well, you know, the fire was the fire was there anyway. I didn't have to have the criticism, you know, on that level. You know, I would do one thing wrong and someone said, oh, I played a bad game. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, come on. You know, you're just jumping on the bag way to kind of, because uh, let's bash old Campbell. But um, no, no, it was just laser, you know, concentrating, laser focus to get to the top and maintain and get better and better and better. And that's, that's what I did. I, I went back to my, my East London days, back to, you know, when I was, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12, and also allow myself to be free again, allow my football to kind of do the talking, just get on and be a team player and break down kind of, you know, uh, the barriers and things like that. And, and just start building, getting fit, building game by game, concentrating, doing my extras and simplifying my life. And I just went back to, went back to the old, you know, East London days and be, you know, just a real kind of, not street fighter, but a real go-getter. I've been dealt these cards. I don't like these cards. So I'm going to do my utmost to change these cards, basically change my, my destiny. And that's what I wanted to do. I had to win. If I didn't win, I don't know what would people say if I, you know, when I did the move. I don't know. But I won and I was successful. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Is there any element of you that 20 years later is grateful for it? Do you know what? Yeah, grateful because I you know, played an amazing side. But, but grateful for the criticism, for what that did for you? No, because I think for me, sometimes I think the media, that, uh, not so much now, overstepped the mark and it was doing lots of things overstepping the mark you know at that time you know of, you know you can go on and on. i'm not going to go on on all the court cases things like that i can go on all day i would have made it because that's inside me anyway competing there was enough competitors out there you know there were the teams there's man united there was liverpool there's chelsea all the, there was enough teams to you know that's my competitive side I, I you know me beating you know one of the main teams to, to win the premiership that's all i need i don't need anyone else pushing me and that's how it should be, competing at that level against your peers. Who's the best? 
You know, that's me. You know, back in East London, who's the best in the street? Who's the best in this area? Who's the best in this district? Who's the best in the county? You know, who's best? Who's the best players in England? Who's the best players in Europe? Who's the best players in the world? That's my my drive, not someone criticizing me. So how does that competitive instinct manifest itself today, Sol, now that you have retired as a player? I want to be the best manager possible if I get the chance. I'm very good at you know, getting in a situation and working out very quickly how to get this team up to standard and beyond that. And I want to be the best. It's a journey for me, but I'm being positive and I'm going to, you know, I'll, I'll fight all the way, I'll do the all right things. It reminds me of when I was young and I was getting overlooked all the time. And I was overlooked all the time in a lot of scenarios from, from an early age. And I had to work to get to the top. I just hope, you know, me working in, in, as a manager, someone out there, manager um, uh, hierarchy-wise, you know, sports direct, sporting director, will see that and uh, understand that I have the passion. I, I've got the, the ability. I just need the right club to kind of work for. I want to be, I want to be successful. Whilst I want to come back and ask you about that, I'm interested in terms of how that competitive side manifests itself personally, because you're also a father and a husband. How do you sort of pass on these values and these lessons to your children? Every day. They're from a totally different background and lifestyle and, and environment. And you've got to kind of talk to them every day and, and pull them up on every day on all little things, being kind, understanding, you know, that there's some kids around around the world who have nothing to eat, um, no clothes, you know, giving their spare toys to charity, all those kind of things. So to, to show them, you know, they are, they are lucky, they're, they're lucky, but also to, to make sure they don't uh, ruin it. They don't waste all the opportunities, waste, you know, the time at really good schools. Understand, you know, you, you've got to kind of utilize every second. Don't waste anything. Everything's precious. Uh, your time, your life, um, friendship, all that kind of stuff. So I, we, me and my wife, we, we, we push that and we, we, we encourage that as well. And also to be strong as well at the same time and, you know, values and understanding sometimes you've got to stand up for whatever, you know, you, you're feeling and, and, and also express themselves as well. You want them to be artistic. You want them to be loving. You want them to, to kind of understand or try to begin to understand the world and, and want that kind of curiosity in them and finding out what's around the corner or what about this and asking questions. I want them. I, I, I push that, you know, me and my wife, we push that for, uh, to kind of implement that. And, and we want that kind of um, feedback from them. We want, we, and that's the best way. That's the only way you can, you know, you don't want to say, right, you, you know, you want, we're going to move back to East London and we're going to live there. You, that's not going to happen. So you've got to do it in other ways. And so you sit here as someone who, has played almost 100 games for England. You've won trophies at some of the biggest clubs in the country. You've got your coaching badges. You've had experience at League Two and experience at League One. And I know that you feel that if you weren't black, you would have been the England captain on a permanent basis. Do you still feel that because you're black, you're not getting the chances in management? I think for me, the uh, diversity in, in, in uh, mentality is changing. I think mean, the hierarchy makeup is probably not changing as much, but the mentality is changing. I think the next step is the fans to kind of start to kind of uh, change in, in the ways of who they would like at their football club and things like that, because they're, they're, they're a big part. They're a big part. And understand, you know, talent is not just held by colour. You know, talent is held by whoever. And if you are overlooking someone because of his colour, 
you're missing out on a great manager who can quite easily come into your club and be successful and, and be amazing. And at the same time, it might not work out, but don't stop yourself employing or, or opening up to that idea of, of, of someone of colour managing your football club. It's, it, it's so archaic. And you still think that that is the mindset of, of some fans, that there's still that barrier there. And maybe even, is it subconscious? Because I, I think if you went to football fans and if you went to chairman and you went to boards and said, would you employ a black manager? Would you like a black manager to manage your football club? I do feel almost to a man and woman, they'd go, yeah, 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 definitely. But there is then a disconnect because there isn't black managers, there isn't black coaches, there isn't black chairmen, there isn't black boardrooms. I'm just so interested in where is this falling down? Is this still unconscious, subconscious racism where they don't even realise that they're making that decision based on the colour of your skin, but that is what they're doing? I can't really answer that. And what I can answer is, is I think the media plays a big part in how fans, uh, hierarchy, sporting directors, how they go about picking their next manager. And there's got to be a right consciousness and a right kind of the mindset of, of not only changing the manager, but also changing the whole club, how, they is, how it's run, who owns the club, who's the director, who's the doctor, who's the kit man, all those things, not just the manager. I think you've got to change the whole kind of culture. And then obviously the fans, have, they've got to realise that regardless of where you're from or what colour, you should be open to someone who wants to really, you know, has got the qualifications. I don't know. Maybe he's not your favourite, but at least allow him to have a chance because you've, you're given ABC, you know, a chance. Why not this guy a chance? You know, you should not, colour should not come into it. In 20 years time, we'll be looking back and say, what, what are we doing? And it takes time. You know, some of us haven't got time to kind of, you know, wait on the sidelines before people start changing the mentality, the mindset. You know, for me, I, I want it to start now. It's hard for me because, you know, I've, I've got all my badges. I've, I've played for, the, you know, some of the best teams and played with the best players, but I can't manage some of the best teams in the world. I get it. You've got to be experienced and, and, and I want to do that, but I want to build a career. But if I can't build a career, I could never, I won't be able to get to the top if I can't build a career. As someone who works in the media, so tell me what you see, what you hate or what, or what you want to change from the media's perspective. When you look at the media, I think they've got to be, I mean, it's the Danish. Was it Danish? Did the, I think the PFA did a uh, kind of research uh, or pay for research. And I think it's a Danish company that, they came back and they, they, they looked at England, France, Italy, America, Spain, of, of the commentators, how they would describe a black player or someone who's lighter skinned and things like that. And they showed it was kind of, you know, oh, he's a beast if he's a, if he's a black uh, player or if he's lighter skinned. Oh, he's really intelligent, things like that. Those are the things. And that's come out on uh, research that... So I remember it because we spoke about it at work. 62, I remember the number, 62% of the praise was aimed at players with a lighter skin tone. 63% of criticism was aimed at players with a darker skin tone. And we and commentators were seven times more likely to talk about players with a darker skin tone being physical rather than talking about white players working hard. Yeah. If you go back to my career, 20 years, if you're maybe say, I don't know, you're 35 then and then now you're 50 and you bought a football club, but you've had 20 years of someone saying that on TV, what's that going to make you feel? Oh, is he intelligent enough to run the football club? And that's that's the thing. Well, I am. You know, there's a lot of people from, you know, 
black players who are now trying to be managers are very intelligent. You know, so so, v, so that that is that is. I see it, but all they've all those chairmen have been told, isn't it? Is oh yeah, he's he's a heart, he's he's a he's a physical specimen. He can run the lines. He'll put a shift in on a football field, but run a football club. And then you're right. It is that's years and years of being conditioned to feel that way about black footballers, isn't it? Tall. I remember many years ago interviewing um, Ferenc Soriano and asking him about his criteria for selecting 37-year-old Pep Guardiola to take over at Barcelona. And he he quoted some a conversation he'd had with the American investor Warren Buffett about appointing a leader, whether that's a football club or a business. And he said there's three criteria that should be applied. One is the energy to do the task. The second is the credibility. So when you speak, that people listen to you and know that what you're talking about. But the third and most critical criteria was the integrity, the ability to role model the behaviours that you're asking everyone in your culture to demonstrate. So what would you say you offer when it comes to the integrity piece that if you were to say to a chairman or a decision maker that was deciding whether to appoint you as a manager? What is the integrity that you bring? What are the non-negotiables? One of the things is trust, isn't it? I, you bring, I bring a lot of trust with me. You know, you've got to be trustworthy in, in a position like that. And I'm fully committed, 100%. You know, I would work day and night and you need to do that at a football club because you want this football club to be successful. You want the players to be successful and ultimately, hopefully, you know, you keep your job. So I want to do that. And the passion, in a passion, you're like you can have a bad day, a bad week, a bad month, a bad season, but I'm never going to lose my my love of football, regardless of what's happening out there. And then you bring all the, all those things together, and you you get a team, you you build a team that can um, withstand all that and and win games and get out of trouble. And I can I bring that in the buckets fools. And then honesty as well. Honesty, the players can work you out very quickly, and you've got to be as long as you're honest with I'm honest with you, and you're honest with me. That's 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 what I'm all about. Because everything else, I'll put you know everything into it to kind of win games and 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 work out systems and make sure players know what they're doing and blah blah blah. You bring all the, all those things together, all those ingredients. I bring that you know knowledge, compassion, understanding. That's what you bring. You know, yes, I've done you know a lot in football, but really, I'm really down to earth, and you can talk to me, and I just get on with it. I'm re- sometimes yeah, I'm a bit switched on, you know, but. You want someone who's switched on at a football club, don't you? You don't want to, you want someone to kind of, hey, that's got a bit kind of pear shaped. Can we sort that out? You want someone like that, don't you? You don't want someone who doesn't see things. And, and you want someone with work ethic who's going to work, you know, tirelessly to kind of, you know, make sure your club stays up, make sure you, you've got a chance to win a cup or, or win the league. And that's what I bring. And because I'm a winner, I've seen it, I feel it, I know what it's all about. And I just want to pass it on to wherever I go. That was my question, so why do this? Because you've built a career on being in control and you spoke about, as a young player, putting in the effort and the graft and doing the extras and then coping with the pressure from the fans and the media when you got to the biggest clubs. And again, you dealt with that yourself. Yet you've gone into two management jobs. Macclesfield Town, you did a brilliant job. You kept them up, but then financial issues meant that you left. And then you go to South End, where you can't even sign a player because they've got financial problems and then COVID hits and you leave. So... On both occasions, you left both clubs and you had problems at both clubs, not because of the work or the effort or the talent that you bring as a manager, but outside forces conspiring against you. Are you totally happy to go into that world where it isn't about you and about your effort? 
I think for me, I got to pick, you know, the club carefully next time round. <laughs> I think the famous <laughs> thing, what um, I think Alex Alex Ferguson said, "Don't pick your club, pick your chairman," and that's uh, I think that's kind of uh, nine times out of ten is right. You got to pick your chairman. Does he back you? Is he or does she back you? You go into a club and they can, there's all unknowns. The first thing is you, you've got to have that that trust that whoever's there. He's got your back and understands that, you know, you've got a job and, and backs you and, and helps you through this and, and believes in you that you can do it. And as, as, as we sit here talking now, do you feel you'll get that chance? I don't know. You know, I'm positive. I, I believe in myself, but someone else has to believe in me. There's got to be enough yeses around that table to say, look, give him a go. See what he can do for our club. You know, why not this guy? He's talked a lot. Let's see what he can actually walk the walk. <laughs> Let's see. You know, um, and I, and also for me, I, I say, look, give me a year. As long as, as long as there's a preseason in there, give me a year. I'm ready. I'm always, you know, I want it. I've got passion. I want to kind of, you know, it's a journey. It's tough, but I'm willing to take this journey. I'm ready. But it's, it's, it's going to come down to if someone believes I'm ready. And when you leave a club then, Sol, um, one that is meets the criteria that you would want, what would you want people to say your legacy would have been there? I think you want to be a custodian, you know, you want to come into a club and when you leave, it's in a better position. And that's me. You know, that's, that's me. I, I want to do a hard day's work um, and make sure people know that. Uh, I want people around me uh, working as hard as me. And that's what I mean. You want a custodian. You want to leave a club that is in a better position than when you got in through the door. Brilliant. So interesting to to hear you talk like this, Sol. And, you know, I, I suppose what stands out for me from this conversation is that all these years, all these lessons, all these things that you've learned, you're now putting into life as a manager. I just wonder whether, before we move on to our final sort of quickfire questions, whether actually, whether it happens or not, these days you kind of feel a bit armour-plated, really. You know, you've been through so much, you've experienced it all, and yet you're still standing tall. You're still willing to go again. I, I have a phrase, never sit in the comfy chair, and it feels to me like that's you. You don't want to just sit at home and think, well, I had a good career. You want to go again. And I, I just get the sense that all of these experiences are part of your part of your armour. Yeah, well, it's just, it's, you learn that if you, you know, I'm not saying I'm a sponge, but you want to kind of, you need to learn if you want to get better. Some of the harsh lessons can keep you in good stead. And also the frustrations of not thinking that, you know, when is it going to happen? Am I going to get in? Yeah, that can fuel, fuel the kind of the fire inside you. I think it's really interesting. Thanks so much for being so um, honest and, and open with us. We always finish all with our quickfire questions. Um, first of all, three non-negotiables that the people around you have to buy into? What are the three things they must bring to the table? Oh, I said one of them is passion. Yeah. You've got to have passion. Um, and commitment. Totally commitment. Committed to the to the cause, and whatever cause it is. Yeah. Uh, and for me, um, the trust is big for me. Trust from both sides. Trust, honesty, you know. What advice would you give to a young soul just starting out in place, though? <laughs> I would say just keep that passion for football. Train, train, train. Train by yourself. Train with your mates. You know, but keep the passion. Don't, lo don't lose the love of the game. There's so many things 
out there that could easily take you off the course or or distract you. The eyes on eyes on the ball, eyes on the game, and it will get you through. And and the love will get you through the game. You know, there's lots of ups and downs in football, but if you love football and the passion's there, you know, you, it'll get you through. How important is legacy to you? So depends on the legacy. It depends who's looking at the legacy. A legacy for myself, you know, what I've done, how I've done it. You know, some people might say he's done it in a in a good way. Some people say it's indifferent. But the main thing is for me, legacy is all about leaving a, a positive mark for the future for other people to maybe come after you to say, Do you know what? He did it in this way. Oh, I quite like that. Or I might take a little bit of that and do it in another way. That's what it's all about. The legacy of of someone who comes in after you and they either use it or use part of it. But the main thing is as long as, as, long as they use it in a positive way. And finally, Sol, what's your one golden rule to live in a high-performance life? Concentration. Don't get bored of, 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 of the ability to concentrate. So many people lose concentration in the game. So concentration. I love it. Um, it's been wonderful to sort of uh, go through those amazing moments in your life, the ups and the downs. And it's, it's clear that it's all distilled down now into a man who is as full of passion for football as he's ever been. And, uh, and he, just, he just wants an opportunity. Um, and I think we all, we all agree, having had this hour just to sit and talk with you, I know an awful lot more about you and your mindset and things. And we live in this world where we see a tiny part of someone's life and we just make up the rest of the story. And I think conversations like this are great for, for us hearing the real story. And um, I hope that in some small way, maybe it does help to open some doors that I think deserve to be opened. Yeah, thank you. It was, it's been a pleasure. It's been really good. Top man. Damien. Jake. If ever we've done an interview where the message to people listening is, try and find out the whole picture about someone before you judge that person. I feel that that is the interview. Definitely. I think he was a man that um, everybody's got a perception of it within his world. You know, they, they all think that they know him. And I think, but I think when you hear somebody speak with such passion and such honesty and just openness, I think it challenges your perception as long as you're prepared to listen. And you know how the word desperation has negative connotations, right? I, I mean this in totally in a positive way. You could hear in his voice and the way he spoke his desperation for getting into management and for being successful and for doing a good job. And I don't mean that like, oh, Sol Campbell's desperate. I mean it like in a in a positive way. He's got all this inside him and he's desperate to share it. Yeah, it was almost like the image that came to mind was somebody that's got it all just it, that it's bubbling away and it needs to escape in some form, you know, and I think for him is his outlet is to go into a club and to lay his blueprint. To, and I love that idea of what, of when we said, what would his legacy be? It'd be to leave a place better than when he found it, which is all that any of us can ever do, whether it's it, we're in a classroom, whether we're in the home with our family or whether we're going into a business, it's about, can you leave a place better than when you, originally inherited it and I think that is the, you know he's not over promising he's just promising that he'll come in and do his absolute best and the conversation about racism is one that um I find kind of difficult in some ways because I work in football media and if you'd have said to me a year ago oh, there's there's a unconscious bias in the work that happens I wouldn't have understood or wouldn't have believed and actually when you when you look at the results of those surveys and you talk to someone like Sol you realize that 
Yeah, you can go, oh, yeah, yeah, we must be better. We must try not to put black players in a certain box and talk about them in the same way as we talk about white players. But he is an example of someone whose life is actually being affected month by month because of years and years of this kind of bias. And it leaves people thinking that black managers are different to white managers. And, and, you know, you can't question him on that because he's experiencing it. He's living that every day. Yeah, definitely. There's a great phrase that I remember hearing um, Barack Obama use when he, in his um, inauguration speech when he first became president, when he said, how can we shake hands if we're only waving our fists at each other? And I think what Sol was doing there was he wasn't attacking anybody. He was just asking you to listen to his point of view, to understand how it must feel to be on the receiving end of somebody describing your physicality as opposed to your intelligence. And I think if we have that idea that he's not suggesting that we're consciously racist, sometimes it's it's unconscious uh, in our environment and our conditioning. And I think when we become aware of it, it appeals to our better nature to want to try and understand and improve. Yeah. And it's, it's something that you can't question because all you have to do is look at how many black managers are in the football league and, uh, and there's your answer. Yeah, definitely. All right. Listen, a really fascinating conversation. And again, one that is totally different in every respect to any high performance podcast episode we've done before. Thanks for your time, man. Well, Damien, do you know what I like? When we speak to Joe Malone, as we did a couple of weeks ago, people get in touch to say, oh, I love that because it wasn't really about business it was about life and then when we have a conversation with someone like Sol Campbell people often realize that we think that elite sport is different to the rest of the world and actually we realize that elite sports people are just like us and that the things that create success in the world of sport are the same things that create success in the world of life the world of business everywhere really Definitely, Jake. Um, I'm often reminded of uh, many, many years ago, I I met uh, Angelo Dundee, who was Muhammad Ali and Sugar Ray Leonard's coach, to name some of them. And I remember I was like a kid in a sweet shop where I was talking to him about this fighter and that fighter and tell me what that happened, what that fighter did. And he indulged me really lovely for about an hour. And then after a while, he said, Damien, I think you've misunderstood. He said, "Uh, what I do. And I was horrified. I thought I'd made a mistake. And he said, I don't work with fighters. I work with young men that just happen to fight for a living. And I think that sums up where we're trying to get to with this podcast. We're not talking to entrepreneurs. We're talking to people that just happen to work as entrepreneurs. We're not speaking to sports people. We're talking to people that work in sport. And I think it's the people element that's consistent, regardless of whatever industry they're in, the challenges, the mindset, the beliefs, the ones they surround themselves with. That's what intrigues me. And I know it intrigues you as well, Jake. It does. And I, and what I don't want people to do is kind of think that there has to be some separation. I think that high performance is high performance for life, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, and I loved it when Kevin Sinfield said, to be a winner, first you have to be a winner at home. In other words, you can't be successful in business, but useless with your friends. You can't be successful in sport, but not pay attention to your kids. It's It's about a whole set of behaviors, a whole set of non-negotiables that you take with you no matter where you go on the journey of life it doesn't matter these things are there all the time absolutely it's what Mahatma Gandhi when he described it as harmonies when your thoughts your words and your actions are all aligned and I think like you say that that's not something you turn on and off when you're at home you're a good dad but you're a bad friend or you know you were great at work but you're terrible at home these are habits and behaviours and mindsets that are consistent regardless of where you find yourself. There's that consistency 
of application and the way that you show up. And you know, when, when I first spoke to you about creating this podcast, in my mind, I didn't really want to talk about failures and struggles. I wanted this podcast to be totally about sort of celebrating people's successes. But as we've gone on, it becomes more and more important, I think, to have those conversations about the dark times. And we had a, a message that came in on Instagram from Sheikhadi81 saying, what about learning from the ones who didn't quite make it? What if they did all the things that all the guests have said, but it still didn't work out for them? Can we learn something from them? Being a fellow Man U fan, I'm sure you'll know about Ben Thornley, but he was unfortunate with injuries. Obviously, he was a great player, but he was. Yeah, his career was ended with, with injury. What if everything was there, the will, the effort, the intention, but the circumstances didn't quite work out? Should we try and decipher those cases as well? And I think we absolutely should. And I think what we try and do is is still try and decipher when it didn't work with the people who eventually did find success, you know? Yeah, definitely. Because that phrase that we've used a number of times across the series about it's the journey, it's not the destination that's most important. It's what we learn along the way. And that's the danger of getting too attached to outcomes. If the outcomes don't manifest themselves, if you don't become the champion, that doesn't mean that the years of effort and struggle and discipline have been irrelevant or a waste of time. It's what you learn along the way that's just as powerful as to whether you achieve your objectives or not. Remember when Joe Malone said nothing's wasted? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good example of it that, you know, like I found Joe's example where she spoke about uh, what she'd learned from when she was diagnosed with having breast cancer and the experience of that. You know, I found it profoundly moving when she said, I wouldn't change being diagnosed with breast cancer because the experience and what it taught her is what she's using today in her regular day-to-day -day life now that she's thankfully in recovery. And I think it's important that when people listen to the podcasts, they do pay attention to when our guests discuss the difficult times. You know, people that have just listened to this episode have heard Sol Campbell talking about the fact that he's had an amazing career and international, he's won pretty much every trophy you can win yet now clearly feels that frustration that he's not being given a, a, a shot at management at a level and on an equal footing with other people. And I think it's important that we've, we don't just listen to these podcasts to pick out the good stuff and, and, and the wins. It's important that we also focus on the losses and the defeats as well. Definitely. I think a, a nice metaphor for this is thinking of it like a flower, where if you only look at whether the flower blooms, so you look at the uh, the petals and uh, uh, the top half of it, that's not really the indication of whether it's sustainable. It's the roots, it's the environment uh, that that lies beneath the surface that really tells you something about how sustainable that success is. And I think that's what we're trying to get to, the roots, and look at what is the esteem element, not just the external bits, that to me is the most fascinating part of these discussions. And actually, when you go through all of the people that we've spoken with, every single person has got that failure, if you think about it. You know, Rio Ferdinand talks about losing his wife. Anthony Middleton opened up about going to prison. Maurizio Pochettino discussed the challenges of, of losing his job. Stephen Bartlett was finding frozen pizzas to feed himself. Tom Daly obviously lost his dad at a young age. Robin Van Persie with his children struggling. Holly Tucker with being brave and making a big decision. Dylan Hartley leaving home. Kelly Holmes with the trauma of self-harm. That's just from series one. There's not a single guest. As, as I'm just on my phone now looking through the, the, the sort of three and a half seasons that we've done. I'm not sure there's a single guest that hasn't experienced the hard stuff, the bad stuff, the negative 
but the key is how they're reacting to that stuff. They're not just getting knocked down by it. They're, they're coming back for more. Definitely. And if there's one big takeaway for people to understand this, that success doesn't happen in straight lines. It's the bumps in the road. It's the hurdles. It's the difficulties where people learn most about themselves. It's not that it develops character. It simply reveals the character that they're going to then demonstrate to get them back on track and allow them to carry on their journey. I think it's such an interesting conversation. And look, if you're listening to this and you're feeling that at the moment you are struggling and you're failing, please don't suddenly think that these podcasts are not relevant for you. You know, we want people coming to us, Damien, because actually a lot of the messages we get are from people saying lockdown or personal issues or work, life balance problems, whatever it is, these podcasts are helping me. And we want that to be the case, Damien. Yeah, and especially so. Um, there's a message um, that this week from one of our listeners, uh, Stephen Brown. Stephen Brown lost his wife, uh, Sam, who unfortunately passed away after a long terminal illness uh, just a few weeks ago. Stephen has used the inspiration from the messages he's heard on the podcast to channel his grief into raising funds for um, children in deprived, difficult backgrounds to have access to laptops and tablets. Um, and he's been incredibly generous in crediting some of the messages he's heard on the series so far, especially that question around legacy. He wants to honour his wife's uh, memory by doing something tangible. She was a former nursery school teacher, and that legacy question that we ask has prompted him to want to go out and make a difference. So I just wanted to give a, uh, a mention to Stephen and the brilliant work that he's doing. Oh, that's so nice. Yes, yeah, Stephen, on behalf of all of us on the High Performance Podcast, sorry for your loss, sending lots of love to you and your family and well done for doing what you can to turn um, a horrendous moment into something positive for so many people. And on that note, Damien, thank you so much for being involved as always. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks, mate. Love it as always. Top man. Thanks to Will. Thanks to Hannah. Thanks to Finn at Rethink Audio for his hard work on this podcast as well. He was especially excited because he's an Arsenal fan, so he loved um, talking to Sol Campbell, as did we all. Thank you very much at home for getting involved in the High Performance Podcast, for being part of our family, part of our community. Finally, thank you. Thank you for being the energy behind this podcast and keep on coming back for more. We can't wait for you to enjoy another week of great content from the High Performance Podcast. We'll see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.